0: so what I was thinking about this morning, I was thinking about everything that happened last year, right? Like it was one year ago that Australia was on fire. Does that feel like an eternity ago? And I was gonna list the things, but then as I was doing it, I started to not have fun and I didn't wanna make you go through that. So we're not gonna do a not fun thing. But what has to be noted is, did you know the very last thing to happen in 2020 was a, a group of firefighters in Florida. The very last call they got on the last day of 2020 was to go put out a dumpster fire, which how symbolic is that? I thought that was so stinking funny. <clears throat> but this year has been a little crazy. This year has been pretty iconic in how crazy it's been. we'll be talking about it for Probably a long time. It will be referencing it, joking about it, crying over it. You know, there'll be movies made about it. They'll take some stuff out because they don't want to make it too scary, but it, it's been pretty nutty. It's, for me, it's kind of like there's this movie that I saw when I was in high school. I went with my friends down to Southgate Cinema, and it, it's the single worst movie I've ever seen in my life. So what happened is it's a spaceship. It's all these people on it, and somehow there's aliens on it. And so for two and a half hours the movie is filled with chaos and violence and fire and just stress. Like they're trying to get you as anxious as they can be. That was the sole purpose of the movie. So like the movie does this, where it goes, scary, scary, violence, violence, explosions, and then it tries to lull you into calm and everything's gonna be okay. And then the alien's right above him. Oh no, and then they better run, run, run. And then it's just going back and forth like that between extremely anxious to maybe it's gonna be okay. And then at the very end of the movie, everyone died. That was that movie. Like, have you ever been in a movie theater and people stand up, they start whistling, going, Woo! That changed my life, as if like the director or someone who's ever involved in that movie is in the room. That did not happen in this movie theater. So this movie theater, it ends and it was just quiet, and the screen was dark, and I think people were expecting something more, and then the lights came on. It's like, oh, I guess we should leave. So we left. And no one's really talking. And so all, my friends leave. I'm sitting with my buddy Craig on a bench outside of Southgate Cinema waiting for my parents to come pick us up because we're in high school. We don't drive yet. And neither one of us is talking. We're just sitting there. You know when you're, your mind is somewhere? So like you're physically here, but mentally and emotionally, you're somewhere really far away because you're kind of processing whatever that was. And it's just like deep in you. Both of us are just sitting for a long time. There's cars coming and going. There's people coming and going. And Craig just goes, I can't calm down. And I go, what? And he goes, I'm so stressed right now. I, I'm just waiting for a car to explode or an alien to come run at me or for someone to start screaming and the sky to burn up. Like I'm, I'm waiting for bad stuff to happen. And I'm sitting there going, my heart's beating too. Like pretty quick, I'm, I think I'm a little stressed because for the last two and a half hours, We had been conditioned that whenever anything's calm, something really bad's about to happen. I kind of feel like going into 2021, I'm sitting on the bench outside of Southgate Cinema thinking, what else can go wrong now? Like, are things gonna be better because we're in January or did 2020 just set the bar and 2021 is gonna leap that thing? Like, where are we headed right now? I don't know if there's anyone else who feels that way. But I kind of feel like, yeah, this year has been a lot. I don't know if like... I think it was May, where I'm at home, I would turn on the TV, and I would think, someday, 2020 is gonna run out of ways to shock us. And then I'd turn the TV off in, in like 10 minutes, and I'd say, today is not that day. And then we'll try again tomorrow. That was this year. So like everyone's saying, happy new year, I'm almost feeling like, yeah, here we go. So this year, there's really broad, big stuff that we all felt. There were big overarching problems that affected everybody in some way, shape, or form between the lockdown or the education system being fundamentally changed or the stock market or the economy as a whole and employment. There were big things, big overarching things that affected each and every one of us. But there were also things we came into 2020 with personal issues with relationships, maybe our health, maybe someone we care dearly about that 2020 only compounded and made worse. You may be heading into 2021 with unique issues to you that make April of 2020 sound like a good place to go right now, where there's issues with your marriage or your health or your kid's health or the loss of someone you love where you think, I really don't want to face this right now. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6, is standing in front of a really large crowd who's going through really big issues that's that's affecting everyone standing in front of them. There's big issues with the government. There's big issues with the different religious parties and the fighting between them and the fighting between them and the government. There's, There's major issues socially and politically and economically with all the people sitting in front of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount but there's also unique issues to every single person who's there and they want help from Jesus. There's people who are sick, their kids are sick, there's people whose marriage are falling apart, there's people who are gonna lose their business, there's people whose, their entire world is completely crumbling in front of them and this huge group is sitting in front of Jesus, going through a lot right now. And Jesus gives them two things, two things that are always true, two things that I think if you and I take and really lean into them. Really take to heart the things that Jesus is telling us. Not only will it help you get through 2021 in a way more calm, encouraged, hopeful way, but you can take it into your daily life, into your marriage, into your workplace, and it can transform you. It can have you live life the way that you're supposed to live life. If it worked, if Jesus says it works for that group of people, it, it could definitely work for us. So, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be starting in verse 25. This is what Jesus says Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? which is such a funny command, because who actually chooses to be anxious? Who actually gets up in the morning and, and they go, you know what, I was so attentive and present with the kids yesterday. I think I owe it to myself to really stress out, out about debt and you know, things that are completely out of my control and, and Um, you know, my, my workplace, like what if something happens at my workplace and they change my role? I'm not good at it. So I lose my job and then I won't be able to make my car payment, so I lose my car. I can't get another job. So I'll lose my house. My kids will have no place to sleep. And then everyone will hate me. I'm going to do that today. Like, does anyone really, no one does that. No one thinks, Hey, today I'm going to let my, my mental life just spiral out of control in front of me. And then when my kids come up and ask for a glass of water, I'll already be on edge and be like, what? Yes. Get water. Right? Like no one actually decides, hey, I'm going to be anxious today. Jesus isn't saying, hey, just figure out how to deal with it and deal with it. That's not what he's doing. Instead, Jesus wants to get underneath our anxiety. Jesus wants to show us roots of where that stuff comes from and unearth it so that you and I can see it and deal with it. This is what Jesus is talking about. Anxiety, this worry that he's talking about is it's looking at the future and focusing on the potential, and it's not the actual. This could happen, and if that happens, this will happen, then this will happen, and then you're entirely focused on what could potentially ruin your life and cause everyone to hate you and, and cause everything in the whole world to fall apart. But you're not actually focused on what's actually there. What anxiety is, is it's a deep desire to control what you and I can't control. And it's actually deep in every single person, that desire to control something that's not ours to control. Pascal has this quote that's so brilliant, and he just says, no one desires to be a king more than a deposed king. No one desires to be a king more than someone who had that title, had that position, had that power, and now doesn't anymore. Because he'll always look at the new king and say, I would have done it different.'" I would have done it in a better way. I have different plans. That's not how I would have ran that that role. It's just the same with like a CEO. No one desires to be a CEO of a company more than one who was removed from that position and now has to watch someone else make that decision for for that company. And the Bible tells you and I, the reason that we have this deep, this wanting to control things that are out of our control is because we were designed that way. We were designed for a position that you and I don't have anymore, that when God created the world, he made it perfect, that there was no death in it. There was no wickedness. There was no dishonesty. There was no pain, no hurting. And God created man to fit in that world in the position to be right next with God where God wanted to co-rule and reign over earth with his creation. And he said, have dominion over everything that I've made. Control it, be in charge of it. And Adam, humanity, humans, what they did, what Adam did is he said, well, I actually want God's job. I wanna be in charge of what God's in charge of. I wanna choose what's right and wrong for myself. I wanna be able to decide what's good and what's evil. And as a result, humans lost their job. And now we desire control, but instead there's things in our world that are out of our control that destroy our lives. It's sin. It's death. And it's disease. And it's everything that hurts kids and ruins relationships and destroys families. All of that is where our anxiety comes from. All of that is where that need to control is now gone. And we go, if only I could fix that, then everything would be better. And so Jesus, he gets underneath all of our anxiety and he gives you and I two things. Two things if you and I take, not only will it help you deal with anxiety if you're an anxious person, I'm really not, but it'll help you face everyday problems that we all face. If you take these two things and bring them with you. So here's the first thing that Jesus says. He says, "Don't be anxious about life." Well, that's kind of that's a little broad. You feel like, hey, don't be anxious about your life. Oh, okay. That seems like a lot, right? Because that covers everything. And Jesus, the example he gives is the bird. He says, don't be anxious about your life. Look at the bird. The birds don't reap, the birds don't sow, they don't gather into storehouses, they don't prepare for down the road. You never see a bird out on the sidewalk with little receipts all around it going, oh my gosh, how am I going to pay for this? You never get that. And Jesus is saying, look at the birds. Go down to Walmart and look at the Walmart Pigeon, okay? If God provides for that, don't you think God's gonna provide for you? And all of your worry and all of your freaking out about tomorrow, does that actually fix anything? Because Christmas was a Friday and we have, I have a five-year-old daughter, I've got a three-year-old son, I've got a six-month-old son. So this is literally the sweetest years of my life. And I love Christmas, There's so much fun with my kids. And my three-year-old son, his name is Elon Nash. We call him Elon Crash because he comes into a room like a whirlwind and can destroy everything in a period of time that's actually pretty remarkable. And when you ask him, why are you doing that? He'll look at you and he'll tell you, because I'm a monster truck. You go, okay. So that's who he is. He's Elon Crash. He's the, the character study in... Matt will share the, the, the dad on there's, if you put a toddler boy and a toddler girl in a room and you have an object that they want on the other side of the room, girls will walk around all the obstacles, but the boys will just thrash their way through and jump over stuff to get to what they want. That's my son. Okay. So Christmas night, we're all at my mom's. We're enjoying time with our kids. And my son comes running to his mom, my wife with the bloody nose. And so she's taking care of him. She's she, you know, he got the napkin in his nose. And as she's holding him, she notices on his legs and on his arms, he's got bruises because he's Elon crash, right? But she does the thing that every parent in this modern age is tempted to do every day that you cannot do. She took out her phone and she Googled the symptoms that she saw. She put in toddler, bruises that won't go away, and bloody nose, and then pressed enter. And then what Google did is it used an algorithm that I don't don't even begin to understand to comb through hundreds of thousands of scientific data and papers and studies that were accumulated over hundreds of years, and in 0.2 seconds, retrieved for her the most likely diagnosis, given the words that she put into it. And it just came out with, oh, he's got leukemia. And I don't know if you've ever trained a dog to go hunting, but when an animal who's trained to get on an animal's, another animal's scent is on it, you're not getting them off. When you have a young mom who thinks their child might be really, really sick with something really bad, you're not getting her off that scent. So it's Christmas night, it's a Friday, and she's convinced that Elon has cancer. And I go, baby, he doesn't have cancer, he's got bloody nose, but he's got bruises. And I go, I know, I watched him run into a wall for no reason earlier. Like, I know, he's just, this is who he is. And she goes, I'm worried about it. I go, okay, listen, I will handle it. She says, you'll handle it. And I go, yeah, I will call the doctor on Monday because they're not open today or tomorrow or Sunday. I'll call him on Monday. I'll take him in and we'll figure it out. And she goes, okay. And she goes, you'll handle it. I go, I will handle it. So Friday night, she can't sleep. It's in her head. She's thinking about it. It's just kind of consuming her, but she's trying to not let it. All day Sunday, same thing. It's just in the back of her head. She's thinking about it, all the what ifs. Sunday come and goes, same deal, can hardly sleep. Monday comes and goes because I forgot to call because men and women are different. And Tuesday, I'm at work here and she sends me a picture of Elon with a really bad bloody nose like a real bad one, and so now I'm scared. I'm like, oh my gosh, what if she's right? This looks like she's right, so I call the doctor, and the doctor says, hey, this is the receptionist at so-and-so's office, how can I help you? And I say, hey, I gotta get my son in. Oh, does he need a physical? It looks like he's ready for one of those. No, he's got cancer. (laughs) And she goes, what do you mean he's got cancer? All the evidence seems to point that he's got cancer. Can we get him in? And she goes, well, yeah, so. I go and get my son, and he's three and he's playing with his monster trucks. And so I got to figure out how do I convince this kid to go to the doctors with me. So I say, Hey, Elon, you want to go get ice cream? He goes, Yeah. So I get him, we go get in the car, and we go straight to the doctors. Yeah. And so <laughs> we're in the waiting room for 20 minutes, and the dude's just patient. He's just sitting there. And, uh, one of the ladies comes out and says, okay, Elon, it's your turn. And he goes, ice cream, it gets down. And I'm like, I didn't explain that well. And we go in the back, and they have to weigh him, and they have to get his measurement. And Dairy Queen's never done that. But we've ne- we haven't gone in for a long time, so it's probably fine. And they bring us in the back room, and the doctor wants to see all of his bruises. So I have to undress him so that he can check it out. And he's starting to do this thing. This is his nervous tick. Started to go, yeah, it's starting to get weird. And because no one's explained to him this is an ice cream store yet. And so the doctor is going, you know, these are really normal bruises for a toddler boy. And I go, I know. And she goes, I mean, we can run a blood test. And I go, if you think that's the best. And so we bring him down to the laboratory, stick him with a needle, pull out some blood. And he's just being a trooper. He's just watching the whole thing going, man, this is such a weird experience. And they take the blood away for testing And I take Elon back to the car, and I put him in his seatbelt, and now Elon is doing what I was doing outside of Southgate Cinema. He's sitting in his car seat, looking forward, not really like seeing, kind of like emotionally and mentally somewhere else. And he's just, he's like totally glazed-eyed. And I go, hey, bud, do you wanna go get ice cream? And he looks at me, and he goes, yeah, vanilla. Like, I don't know what that was, but I still want the ice cream, all right? And so I get him ice cream. We go home. um, Our doctor is phenomenal. She calls back in four hours to let my my wife know what the test said. And so my wife is talking to the doctor. The doctor says, he's totally fine. And that causes my wife to just start crying because like all the stress that she had all of a sudden comes undone, and so she can't contain it. So she's got the phone, and she comes around the corner, and she's crying. She's like, the doctor's on the phone. I'm like, oh no, no, I'm crying. And she's like, he's fine. I'm like, why are you crying? And so all of that is to say, Did any of her stress or anxiety or worry do anything to change the diagnosis that came back from the doctor? Here's what it did change. For five days, my wife had been so stressed. Her muscles had been so bound up and tight in ways that she didn't even notice that when the stress got relieved, when the anxiety was gone and the muscles relaxed, she got flooded with whatever was in there and got a crazy headache. Like, I've been in two car accidents. Neither one of them was my fault. My insurance will attest to that. And whenever you, you get a car accident, you get all these knots. When you get them worked out, sometimes you get a headache. She had that for two days, this gnarly, crazy headache because of all the stress and anxiety and worry she had over this. So it didn't do anything to change the diagnosis. If the diagnosis came back the other direction, all of her stress and all of her anxiety, all of her worry would have done nothing. It just would have been worse. And now you think about the millions of people with all the stress and anxiety and freaking out and tension that there has been over the election and the education system and the economy and everything that is completely out of their control, that people lose sleep over, that people get so stressed out about that did not change it even a little bit. Jesus is really trying to ask you and I, who do you think is in control? Am I in control or is God in control? And whenever you and I get into those anxious moments, we need to take a second and think about all that God has made. Consider the birds. Okay, God provides for that. God is taking care of that. God's got a plan for that. If God has a plan for that, I bet you God's got a plan for me. Because how much more valuable am I than a bird? If God's gonna provide for them, I know he's gonna provide for me, but you can only really believe that God is in control. You can only really allow God to be in control of the things that only he can control if you believe that God cares for you. And so the next thing that Jesus talks about is the body. He says, why are you so worried about your body and what you'll put on it and what you're going to wear and what you're going to eat and drink? Why, why? Don't be overly concerned about that. Look at the lilies of the field. Look at the flowers. Look at how beautiful they are today. And their only purpose is to be beautiful today. And then they'll be dead and they get thrown into the fire. Don't you think God's got better plans for you than that? And it's interesting, the illustration that Jesus uses, he talks about Solomon talks about this guy that had more wealth, that had more opportunity to explore whatever his heart desired than anybody else. Solomon had more wives than there are days in the year. Solomon had the acclaim and the attention and the status of all the nations around him looked up to him. He had more money than he knew what to do with. He's basically Jeff Bezos. That's who Solomon is. And Jesus says, even Solomon on his very best day, isn't as beautiful as the lilies of the field. And there's stuff that you and I, we think, man, if I just had this thing, if it was new car, if it was better clothes, if it was a better house, if it was a better spouse, if it was better kids, if I had a better job, if I could just get that one thing, there's this one piece that's missing. If I could have that, well, then I would be accepted, I'd be beautiful, I'd be whole, I'd be significant, I would matter, and and God's saying yeah, actually, the lily that just is, is more beautiful than everything Solomon had on his very best day. That God actually cares for you right where you're at. That God actually has a plan for you with who you are and the place that you're at. You don't have to become something to be used by God, to be wanted by God. He wants you right now. God's got a plan for you. And Corey Ten Boom has got this brilliant quote that says, sometimes you only realize that Jesus is all you need when Jesus is all that you have. Jesus doesn't want for you to get this next thing and then he's got a plan for you. Jesus has got a plan for you. God cares for you. And so Jesus, instead of being focused on these two things, Jesus says, instead of all of that, remember that we have a father in heaven. And instead of spending our energy elsewhere on all the things that we can't control or all the things that can make us anxious or worries, he says, Spend your energy seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Here's what's so significant about Jesus calling God in heaven our father. That's something no other religion has. That's something no other group of people has. Every other group of people can manufacture and come up with their own God that they have to go to and figure out ways to please. And and if I have the right stuff, then God will love me. Jesus isn't saying that you just have a God. He's saying you've got a dad. He's saying that you've got someone who cares for you. Your perspective is not like the pagans that go, well, what are we gonna eat, and what are we gonna drink, and what are we gonna do? The whole world is falling apart. Jesus is saying, you have a father. And what happens is we can allow our circumstances to cloud us, and then we forget that. We forget that God's actually in control, and we forget that God cares about us because our circumstances are all that we can see. You have Elon who is in the waiting room for 20 minutes. Dude, what three-year-old likes to sit for 20 minutes patiently? It's crazy. And then you had Elon get on the the scale, and now he's getting pushed against the wall to get his height, and now he's getting undressed in front of a stranger. It's kind of humiliating. And then we're going to take him to a laboratory, and we're going to poke him. And he doesn't understand any of it. He doesn't get any of it, but you know what he held on to the entire time? Dad said there's going to be ice cream. So I'm going to trust Dad. Dad. That was it. He's like, Dad said, "There's ice cream. There's gonna be ice cream." You and I have to do the same thing with God's promises. He's your dad. He's a good father. If a dad who is forgetful and awful like me will get good gifts for his kids, don't you think that your dad's your heavenly father is gonna get you better gifts? Don't you think he's got better plans for you? That you have a here's what Jesus is saying. You have a personal God who sees you, who knows you, who hears you, who remembers you, that isn't going to abandon you. And once you know that, you're able to seek the kingdom of God. And here's what that means, seeking the kingdom of God. It means let God have his place and then you join him in his kingdom. God's place is God is in control. That's God's job to worry about the big things like the government or the economy or the education system or all the things that are out of your control. You give those to God. How much do you like it when someone who doesn't know anything about your job comes in and tells you how to do your job better? Isn't that awesome? That's what we do to God every day. We say, I'd do it different. And God goes, I know you would. <laughs> it doesn't mean it's the best. It means allowing God to be in control of what only he can control. We have this saying amongst the Edgewater staff to always look for the Good Friday. And that's a theme that goes throughout the entire Bible. So like one of my favorite stories is in Genesis, you have a guy named Joseph who's 16 years old when he gets sold into slavery by his brothers. And when he's in his slave master's house, the slave master's wife accuses him of rape. So he gets thrown into prison where he's forgotten for years, and years and years and years go by since he was at home with his dad, and how easy it would be for him to say, God does not love me. God doesn't care for me. And if he does care for me, he's certainly not in control. I mean, look at my circumstances. This is terrible. Objectively, anyone can say what is happening to Joseph is terrible. This is not great. But Joseph... Over and over and over again, something that that is part of his life says, oh, I I can't I can't sin against my God. He continues even in his terrible, terrible circumstances to believe dad said there's ice cream. Dad's promises are true. Dad cares for me. Dad's in control. I don't get what's going on. I'm not sure why they're taking my blood right now. I'm not sure why I'm having to be whatever's going on around me. But I'm going to trust that that dad has ice cream, that dad's in control. Just like Jesus, when he's the Messiah, right? He's the one that everyone had been looking forward to. He's the king of kings. He's the prince of peace. He's the Lord of lords. And now he's present. He's here. He's been born. He's walking around his pe- with his people. He is healing people. He's, he's setting people have, have had demon possession. Now they're being set free and they're praising God. Lives are being changed. People are being raised from the dead. Jesus is here. This is the moment we've been waiting for. And then he's arrested. And then he's beaten and mocked and humiliated and slandered. And then they're going to whip him so badly. The Bible tells us he doesn't even look like a human anymore. And then they're going to drill nails into his hands and his feet and hang him on a cross until he asphyxiates for six hours and dies. And anyone standing amongst that circle would say, yeah, I don't know that God, God's plan very good. Because it certainly doesn't look like God's in control. Because there's even a Roman soldier who says, if you really are God, come on down from there. Get yourself down. If you really are good, do the good thing. But Jesus knows the only good thing would be for him to stay up there. That by him showing that he's in control, he chooses to stay up there. And what happens is three days later, Jesus raises from the dead. And every single person who follows Jesus looks back on that day and says, that's a good Friday. That wasn't bad. That's actually the best thing that could have ever happened for me. Because Jesus died, I can have life. When Jesus died on the cross, he took all of my wretchedness, my brokenness upon himself. And now I can live because of him. We all look back on that and we say, that's the day the revolution began. You look for the good Friday in things because your circumstances can cloud where you're at. And then you can try to get control and try to to work with, how can God be good in this circumstance? And then it's only till later that you see, oh my gosh, God was doing a work. God was doing something. And when you believe that, when you seek God's kingdom and you say, okay, God, you're in control, I'm not. The second thing Jesus says you have to do, seek his kingdom and seek his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. How do you seek God's righteousness? Especially considering the biblical definition of your righteousness. Because Isaiah tells us that all the best work that you have, all the best effort, your best intentions, all the greatest things that you could do, you get them all together. This is the best that your life has accumulated of. And you go and you present it before God and you say, I did this for you. What Isaiah tells us that translates to, what that looks like, what that becomes, is it's actually disgusting, filthy, literally menstrual rags. And God doesn't want that. And that's the best that you got. So then what are you and I supposed to do? How do you seek God's righteousness if the best that I got is horrid? It's all tainted. What do I do? Well, 2 Corinthians Chapter five, verse 21 tells me this, tells you this, tells us this, that Jesus, the one who knew no sin, he became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. Do you know the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Dr. Jekyll's a normal human being. He's got flaws, he's got failures, he's got good intentions. But when he takes the drink, he becomes Mr. Hyde. Well, there's no good intentions anymore. He's the absolute perfect example of depravity and awful and sin. That's who Mr. Hyde is. And the Bible tells us, there's not a redeeming quality in it, that when Jesus got on the cross, he became our sin. He became Mr. Hyde. He became the perfect picture of all of our brokenness, all the world's wretchedness, all the things that make you and I anxious, that shouldn't be here. He took on himself. And now you and I have the opportunity, have the responsibility to become his righteousness. And what that is, is that's a daily thing. It's an hourly thing where you say, Jesus, you, will you take my brokenness and will you give me your righteousness? Lord, will you take my brokenness in this? Will you forgive me and help give me the, the strength that I need to forgive this person who's really hurt me? God, I look at the way you've been generous with me okay, Lord, help me to be generous with this person. Help me believe the best about this person. Help me, Lord, empower me to walk out the life that you gave up for me. It's a daily active decision to pursue his righteousness every day. And this is how this practically works out. There's someone in the Bible who's actually in a pit of really bad despair. He's in a really bad spot. But he believes these two things. He believes God's in control and God loves me He believes that he's got a heavenly father. He's pursuing the kingdom of God. There's things in my control that I just want you to take, God. Here's what happens. There's a man named David. David is the best king that Israel has ever had apart from Jesus. David had been told by God that his son Solomon would be king. But his eldest son, Absalom, didn't like that idea. And so now his son Absalom is trying to have him killed, murdered, so that he can be king. Now get that. David's son, the kid that he would cuddle with, the kid that he taught to talk and how to read and how to write, the kid that they would throw the ball around with, that son, his pride and joy, that kid is now an adult who wants his life and his title and his job. And he's willing to turn an entire country around to get it from him. David's life is in shambles. His relationships are destroyed. His family's a mess. His lineage is nothing now. And so David is out on this hill kind of contemplating, what do I do? It seems like everything is falling apart. I don't see any good that can come from any of this. And in Psalm chapter 11, this is what David writes. He's got some advisors with him. These are really wise people to get that job. You have to know a lot about the country and what's going on in the world. And David records for us what they say to him. And David records what he's been meditating on in his heart. It's Psalm chapter 11, verses one through three is what the advisors say. So David writes, in Yahweh, I take refuge. How can you say to my soul? And this is what the advisors say. Flee like a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in the heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The advisors to the king said this Hey, you need to run, because if you don't run, then they're going to come. And if they do come, they're going to kill you. And if they do kill you, the whole world is going to fall apart. Do you see what happened? They started focusing in on the things that they can't control and their world, their whole mindset went to the potential and not to the actual. They started spinning out of control. If everything's going to fall apart, the world is going to be destroyed. You have to run. And this is David's brilliant response in verse four of Psalm chapter 11. He says this so simple. Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. That's what he says to him. Look at what he says. He says, no, God's in his holy temple. Speaking of, in Jerusalem, they have this temple that they built for the Lord that they could go to meet with God. They could go to seek forgiveness and redemption. They could go to cast all their cares upon him and remember that this is a covenant God who loves us, who's got a plan for us, who's gonna redeem us from all these issues that are overwhelming us. He's a personal God. He knows me. He cares about me. He loves me. He's saying, I've got a heavenly father. I've got a God who cares for me. I know God loves me. And the second thing he says is God's on his throne, that God is in charge, that God uses governments and people in high positions as building blocks to get his will done. Nothing surprises Jesus. There's nothing that gets snuck in on a ballot that Jesus wasn't in on. Like Jesus knows. And so what he says to these people is, I know my God loves me, and I know my God is in control. And he finishes out the rest of Psalm chapter 11 talking about righteousness. Righteousness. Just like what Jesus said, if you seek first the kingdom of truth, you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then everything else will be added to you. If you really believe that God is in control, if you really believe you have a heavenly father, you're able to, in all of your circumstances that seem like everything is falling apart, things aren't going right, things aren't going the way that you want. I don't understand why I have to be patient or why this is hurting me. In all of your circumstances, you're able to give them to God because you know, my God knows. And he hears me and he sees me and he's got a plan for me. If you really believe that God is on the throne, you're able to trust the bigger picture to him. Whatever happens with government or education or the economy, you can trust. Yeah, my God's actually in control and in charge and I don't have to stress out about that. But how do you know? How do you know that God loves you? What's your guarantee? How do you know that God cares for you? Romans... 8.32 8.32 tells us this, that if God didn't even withhold his own sum from us, he's not going to hold back any good thing from you either. The guarantee that you have that he has good plans for you is because he's already given his best for you. The guarantee that you have that God loves you is because he gave his life for you. And that man knows no greater love than this that you'd give up his life for his friends. If you believe that, if you trust in that, you're able to seek his righteousness And you're able to forgive those who hurt you. You're able to be generous with those around you. You're able to live out the life that Jesus has called us to because you know God's in control. God cares for me. Everything else is gonna work out. If I believe that, if I hold on to that, not only will you face 2021 differently, but you'll handle marriage issues differently. You handle things with your kids differently, with your job differently. And the best way to remember that and the best way to keep it on the forefront of your mind is every week we get together here and we, do, we take communion. And what communion is, is it's remembering the circumstances that Jesus were in did not look good. Anyone sitting there would say, this isn't good. I don't see how God is in control. I don't see how God cares for me through this. This all seems awful. But through it, you and I were granted redemption and forgiveness and life, and life abundantly. Jesus, we're so thankful to be called your people that we can come together and remember and see the Good Friday in really hard circumstances, that you can take difficult things and use it for good. And we can get all wound up and stressed out and anxious on circumstances or big picture things, but that's not our job. Tomorrow's got enough of its problems. Today, I've been called to pursue your kingdom and to pursue your righteousness. And I get to do that because of your sacrifice for me. I get to actively pursue the life that you gave for me on the cross because you were broken in my place. Let's take the bread together. And Jesus, I pray as we drink that all of the worry of things that we cannot control would be washed away. That all of the worry, all of the stress, all of the anxiety would be washed away just as you washed our sins away. Jesus, we know we have a heavenly father, a personal God who sees us, who knows us, who gave his life for us. Help us to trust in you. Let's take the cup this morning. So every Sunday, we have the opportunity for baptism. And what baptism is, is it's a decision that you're making to publicly declare, not to only to everyone here, but to also the entire spiritual world, that you're going to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. That you're going to turn away from pursuing whatever you were doing before. And instead you're saying, okay, God, I'm going to give up all of that to you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust that you care for me. I'm going to trust that you've got plans for me. I'm doing this. Don't leave here today if you're not baptized. Pursue his kingdom, pursue his righteousness, join team Jesus. And also if there's individual problems that you have, things that you've been struggling with that are are mounting, they're overwhelming, it's a lot, it's compounding on top of everything else that's happened this year, there will be people up front to pray with you. Don't leave without getting prayer. Don't leave without going to your heavenly Father. Will you guys stand with me for one last song?